of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague Stuart Mandel. And Stu, we have a guest today who will have an interesting perspective on the name, image, and likeness discussion, and that is Bubba Cunningham. He is the AD at North Carolina, where there's a lot of really good things going on. And I'll be honest, Bubba's perspective on the NIL issue uh, caught me off guard a little bit. Well, I think we've been so anything involving athletes getting paid, there's definitely a bit of an echo chamber in our world and certainly on Twitter where you get the sense that everybody thinks that free market, whatever they're worth, the athlete should be able to get paid and et cetera, et cetera. I don't think you would necessarily say he's against athletes making money, but he's definitely coming at it from the perspective of somebody who works in college athletics, who's uh, obviously a believer in the current model and is concerned about the impact some of these changes could have if they go through. So it's good to get his perspective on that. And stay to the end, because I think it's a little different than where, you know, I think, like I said, it, it kind of surprised me. I, it surprised me a little bit in the beginning, and then it surprised me even more in the direction it, it kind of went from there. Yeah, towards the end of the interview, some he says some things that you wouldn't necessarily have seen coming based on what he said earlier in the interview. Um. Okay, Bruce, on Monday, I, I joked about it on Twitter, but it felt like Good News Monday in terms of various announcements and whatnot related to the return of sports, related to possibly, or relate, you know, some universities announced like Notre Dame and South Carolina, some more specific plans for how they uh, plan to reopen in the fall. So how are you feeling these days about the, uh, the two-month-long speculation about are we going to have a college football season? Uh, it's a good question. It's a complicated question, right? So there's a couple of things that are going into this. One is the part you're talking about, which was the state of California, New York State, as well as Texas, talking about the possibilities of being open to sports being played in those states, which I think if you had been looking at social media a lot in the last uh, few weeks before that, I think you would have been surprised by that. That would have felt like a little bit of a turn. Um, so that is encouraging, right? The part that I, I'm trying to, you know, factors into this is I think we all have our own approaches to how we are living through the pandemic. And I do feel like, look, where I live in Southern California, some of the beaches are open and that, that changed late last week. And so I think we have seen, I don't want to say people have, have, are kind of pivoting to a different way. But I, I do think people have gotten a little more relaxed in how they're approaching this. And so I think there's that component of it. And then I think there is the component in the early stages. And, and this is one thing, I, you know, I've, this is just a personal observation, but I always wondered whenever I'd see some either politi- politician or some state official making a comment about, well, it's going to be closed till, and it'd be this long feeling, long ranged thing of maybe it's, Maybe it's six weeks from now. Maybe it's two months from now. And I'm thinking, is it really the the wisest decision to make such an announcement where you're going to be letting you're going to be you know people are just going to really take a 
big deep breath when they hear that and when psyche and and mood matters so much at this kind of thing i was like that doesn't seem like it's the wisest decision because it feels like you're you're pushing towards a pessimistic approach whether it's reality or not i'm not necessarily maybe i'm judging that but i feel like this felt like it was more of an optimistic approach now as i've talked to a lot of people in college sports in the last 10 days I don't think we really know what's going to happen in the next month. I think we have to see where things are a month from now. We have our fingers crossed, but that's my viewpoint on it. I mean, how did you take the news? I would say that in the past week, certainly this week, is the most optimistic I've been so far that there's going to be the the teams. I think every school in America, every FBS school in America, this is the first time I can say this, is going to sincerely attempt to start the season on time. Um, I think you might see some teams start to bring players back to campus for training in sometime in June, you know, which is, it could be less than a month from now. I know the SEC is voting later this week, whether to, whether to do it June 1st, which seems very soon and and from now, but if not June 1st, maybe shortly thereafter. Um, And I wouldn't necessarily have said that even a week ago. I remember there was one day early last week when, on the same day, I think uh, Oregon's governor announced no fans at sporting events through at least September. And the California State University system announced they were going to do primarily or only online classes. And the, the, the narrative that day on Twitter was the Pac-12 is doomed. The state of California is not going to be able to play college football this year. Um, they're going to have to go on without them. And then everybody's kind of backed off of that since then and certainly... Gavin Newsom saying Monday that he's open to pro sports returning without fans in early June is encouraging. Um, so I, I'm optimistic. I think that everybody is starting to feel a little bit better. Some of the numbers have been going down for a while now. It doesn't mean they couldn't come back. Uh, we hope they don't. Um, I do have a lot of questions, though, about how it's going to work. Um, I wonder We're if some of this protocols, is... protocols, right? Yeah, about, I mean, I wonder if some of this, the timing of this is that we saw well obviously we've seen some you know some sporting events come back german soccer and uh, nascar race and so on but you know we saw the really long document that major league baseball sent out to the teams outlining in great detail the protocols they're planning to take in terms of testing and what happens if a player tests positive and and so on um nfl nba are in various stages of returning as well and maybe that's making people feel a little bit more confident that, well, if they can figure it out, then certainly we can. Yeah, I, I, the things that I'm curious about as it relates to the protocols will be this. And look, these are things that I think conferences are going to have their medical people. And I think the ACC has, has already kind of discussed some of the people who they think will be in charge of helping make these decisions. But what happens, uh, will there be tests every day for not just uh, all the players, but all the support staff and coaches who are around the football program, which is could be upwards of 150 people. Will those people get tests daily once camp starts? Uh, what's going to happen? What are the protocols going to be in place if and when there are positive tests? Will those people be removed for two weeks? Where will they, you know, what will happen from then? And, uh, you know, I think, is there a threshold if it's more than five members of a team what happens then 
you know, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that they're going to have to sort out. And it doesn't mean that they can't. Um, but, you know, I, I think when it comes to that, I think there's going to be elements of travel and who's coming from where, I think, is, is another issue on this. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that you're talking about players coming back. They're coming back from a lot of times all over the country. Right. So um, I'm I'm interested to see how it's all going to work. And I'm curious to see whether whether they're going to have fans in the stands or not. Um, you know, is that I don't know that that's an interesting thing. I, I think as a just as a college football fan, and I, I don't want to speak for you or anybody else. I mean, I would rather have the games than not the games. And people are going to watch them on TV and whatnot, um, but I think it's it's a it's a really you know we're flying blind on this a lot you know it's like we're in uncharted waters and and I don't know how this is going to play out and I'm curious to see it and I got my fingers crossed that you know the numbers will will not surge but you know who knows because you hear you hear enough people talk about well there could be a second wave and what's going to happen in the fall and I think you know you alluded to both Notre Dame and University of South Carolina setting up their academic calendar in the fall the way they have uh, is my understanding that that would be part of bracing for a potential second wave, right? Yeah, what Notre Dame in particular did, I think, is smart. They move, they're moving the start of the fall semester up two weeks to earlier in August so that they can, and eliminating their fall break in the middle of the semester so that once you get to Thanksgiving and everybody goes home for Thanksgiving, the semester's over. And that way you don't have a whole campus full of kids going home to their hometown. Especially Notre Dame, where it's really a national, you know, like Stanford. It's one of these places where you get students really from all over the country who go there. Yeah, so you don't have them all going to airports and going home and then bringing something back uh, after Thanksgiving. Now, all that being said, I don't, cold and flu season, if, if, and this is a caveat, they don't know, nobody knows if this is going to act like cold and flu season, but Cold and flu season doesn't wait till Thanksgiving, right? It starts coming on in October, maybe, or November, early November. I think, unfortunately, I think a lot of these, pol- the the thinking right now, or these plans are basically operating on um, hoping for the best, right? Because you can make that schedule and hope for the best, but that doesn't mean that you won't get hit with that second wave a month earlier than that. And so when I said I'm very optimistic about teams starting on time, and I am, like my thinking has shifted from that. Maybe a month ago, I would have been like, gosh, I, I don't know how on earth are they, you know, when we're getting this number of deaths per day and this number of cases per day and, um, and schools are shut down through at least July. How on earth are they going to start in late August? I don't necessarily think that anymore. Now I think they'll, they'll be able to start on time. But what happens, like you said, if a season gets interrupted, what happens if you're having not just one team, but many teams have multiple players who are testing positive and, and teams have to shut down for two weeks, then it could get really, really messy. Well, I think that's where you're, you're dependent on the leadership of the conferences. I mean, one thing that I kind of felt a little bit, and I don't know if you were with this with me on this, but we're taping this Tuesday afternoon. On Monday was that day where it seemed like there was a lot of good news. There was also some encouraging news on the vaccine front that you know, we'll see where that goes. We all have our fingers crossed in a big way on that, certainly. But um, one thing that I would say is, and I've tried not to pay too much attention to uh, everything on, on social media, but 
it's pretty exhausting to kind of ride that wave of things. And so I think the fact that there was some some positive news was kind of, you know, everything is like, it's just exhausting, you know, to follow it. And you feel like everything is tied to an agenda in some way or another, or you kind of wonder, is it just, it's harder to take things straight as just, is just what they are, what they purported to be. And that that's the part where I'm like, okay, if this is in this direction, obviously you and I both love football. It is our livelihoods. Um, you know, let's let's keep our fingers crossed and, and hope it uh, you know, hope hope for the best with this. So I said before, everybody's just hoping for the best. Um, it is possible now to see what I've just been trying to do, and I do read probably too much, too much news about it or too many stories. It's just understand the virus more and more. And, and frankly, the people who study it for a living are still trying to figure it out themselves. But, you know, one thing that we know now is that it's transmitted more indoors and in closed environments than outdoors. So that tends to favor football, which is played outdoors. Um, frankly, I'm having uh, it's easier for me to now see how you would do this with a football program. You know, you could totally see where if you can test these guys every day or regularly and it's a finite number of people who enter that building on a given day that you could probably, you know, as much as possible, um, keep them monitored closely enough so that if there is a positive case, it doesn't necessarily shut down the whole program. The part I'm having, you know, you see these universities announce uh, how they're going to social distance in the classrooms and they're not going to do big lecture halls. And that's all well and good. But, you know, college students spend most of their day not in class. Like, don't, like, you can't expect college students to socially distance themselves in their dorms where there might be 10 kids hanging out in one person's dorm room and they're going to go to parties and they're going to go to fraternities. And, like, to me, you can control a classroom. You can't control what happens in the rest of the students' lives. And at some point, the football players, unless they plan to have them, like at LSU, I guess they could sleep in those uh, sleep pods in the locker room. But for the most part, that they're going to go back and, and live in – an environment with other college students that the football program can't control. One of the football players I talked to this week, actually, when I had asked them what would be something that could maybe make this better, ideally, the situation you're going into, and said, football only dorms right now for this because you, you're going to be around your teammates all the time. That way it is. And it's pretty much what you're talking about, Stu. That's what, and I don't know how viable that is but then again like i said we're in uncharted waters here it's something where you're talking about maybe there's not as many of the students who are going to come back but maybe that's a way because again this is a unique situation where you're around 150 people uh every day for a length of time and you're in close quarters and it's physical maybe that is the best approach i don't know if any schools will will do that i'm i wouldn't be surprised if they're in discussions to do that though because i think they gotta look at all sorts of avenues to to approach this in the safest way they can. I mean, if money were no object, and sometimes with Power 5 it's not, you would rent out a hotel for four months and, and make that your headquarters. And nobody comes in and out of the building that's not part of the football program. And, um, and everybody lives there for four months. Kind of the, the, the college, it'll be the college version of the NBA model where they're all going to put them up in, in Vegas but I don't think that's realistic. Um, so it's just going to be a matter of how well they manage the the environment and, and, and a lot of things that we just don't, 
know yet. How about testing capacity and um, contact tracing, all these things that people are saying are essential to be able to do this. Uh, but uh, everybody seems confident that they can have it up and running in time for the season. And, and in, even in the short term, obviously, the SEC ADs feel confident they can have some of that stuff in place by June 1st. So um, anyway, it's, it's just I think this is we're on the 10th week now of this. And, and this is the most optimistic it's felt uh, in terms of, of how things are headed. Um, what do you say we get to our guest? All right, Stu, and now we're pleased to be joined by our guest. It is Bubba Cunningham. He is the athletic director at North Carolina. He's at a uh, an interesting school in just that a lot of times we just talk at things from a football perspective, but obviously UNC with a great tradition in football, but beyond that, all, certainly in basketball and other sports. So, Bubba, thanks for joining us today on The Audible. Well, thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be on. You guys do a, do a great job, and I'm, I'm pleased to be with you. Thank you. Um, so NIL got a lot of attention in the last few weeks with the NCA addressing it now, and we'll see what it looks like. For a lot of people who have looked at it and said, okay, this has been a long time coming for the NCA and that Congress had kind of forced their hand into it, and now there's going to be some sense of like a counterbalance that maybe has been long overdue. From your perspective, what do you think people may not be seeing in the practicality of how you guys are, are going to have to address it from your end? Well, I think there are so many different nuances uh, associated with it that it's, it's even a challenge to try to go through them and explain them. But when I first get asked about, you know, name, image, and likeness and, and my thoughts on it, I, I really don't want to just talk about that. I, I want to talk about the entire educational model in the collegiate experience because it fits, it, it either does or does not fit within that model. And personally, I don't think that the name, image, and likeness is a singular issue because what has been proposed recently is more of a professional model. And the further we get from the educational model and closer we get to the professional model, it jeopardizes the educational value of what we provide. It threatens the opportunities for other sports to exist. I think we need to talk about the choices for students or choices for individuals that want to play professionally or want to play in college and get an education while not being a professional athlete. And then the fourth thing I'd want to talk about would be the commercial activity associated with sport and how that revenue gets distributed by to the participants. So I know that's kind of a, a non-answer to a specific question, but it, it's really a, a significant issue and a big leap for us in intercollegiate athletics to take. And I think we should look at it and see if it actually makes sense for us. Obviously, there's a lot of different forms uh, where NIL can, can could possibly come to fruition. And do you maybe differentiate between, I mean, I think when you talk about something not um, necessarily fitting into the academic model. I think people think about players getting shoe deals, and car dealership ads, and that sort of thing. Um, but in the NCA's proposal, they also talk about social media and how it actually is. You know, other college students, not athletes, are able to monetize their YouTube channels or 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 things like that, and that this may be actually be a case of the other way around and letting athletes take advantage of an opportunity that other college students have. Do you make that distinction? 
I do make that distinction, but when when I think about the the value of the scholarship and what we have included in the scholarship is vastly different than what the other students get. You know, we have uh, academic support program for student athletes. We have the athletic training program. We have a sports nutritionist, sports psychologist. We have the best medical care for anybody on the, the campus. We provide cost of attendance. We provide unlimited meals. So we provide all these other resources that the other students don't get. The students, the other students do have the opportunity to use their name, image, and likeness for profit. And many of the rules that we currently have allow students to generate income that a lot of people are unaware of. You can give fees for lessons. You can work camps. You can do coaching on the side. Now, you just can't use your athletic status to promote that activity. But a lot of the same things you, you can do already. So it's a, they, are, they are different um, offerings to each student. And I think that is kind of lost in the discussion. And so we want to have all these extra benefits that are associated with my athletic participation. And we want the one or two things that the other students have that we don't have. And I think that needs to be discussed in a broader basis. Bubba, let me ask you this, though. I mean, the, there are a lot of things, as you, as you outlined, that, that student athletes are getting that the average student may not be able to get. But the flip side is they're working, you know, if you talk to a lot of college athletes, and I know you do, they're working full-time jobs, essentially, and the commitment that's on them, the pressures that's on them. But then the other part of this and it's something that I feel like has gotten, has come up a lot, especially in the face of the pandemic, is how much money that, especially when it comes to college football, is driving other sports. So if you're a college football player, uh, you're sitting there going, wait a minute, we and that, uh, are going to say we are making, helping make hundreds of millions of dollars for college athletics and supporting other programs and supporting other businesses around it. So do you see where there would be a disconnect where they would look at it and go, wait a minute though. Yeah. Yes. We're getting some, we're getting some other things that other regular students aren't getting, but regular students aren't funding the things that we are funding and don't have, I don't say the burden, but don't have the other things on their plate that we have on too. Yeah, I agree 100%. And uh, I think that is the question that that's exactly the question I think we're asking. What is the collegiate model? What is the professional model? The professional model, in my opinion, is you generate the money, you get the money. The collegiate model has been built on broad-based programming, generating a significant amount of revenue and sharing that revenue across multiple platforms. That's why we have Division One. You have to have a minimum of six sports for men, eight sports for women. I mean, part of the, the growth of college athletics has been on the backs of football and basketball. There's no question about that. But it's created so many other opportunities for people to play. That is the great debate is if you generate it, you get it. That's a pro model. It's not the collegiate model. And, you know, we have a half a million student athletes in intercollegiate athletics. Almost half of those are women. If you look at pro sports in the United States, of the team sports, 93% of the professional athletes are men. So it's a very different model. They're both good models, but they're just different. And so I think that discussion is really something that is important. Um, if we want to go down that path, that's a 
it's a fine path, but it may not be in the best interest of the most people. And I'm sure you, you know that another uh, point that people who are in favor of the athletes making more money will, will, will obviously point to is in the case of your school, uh, Mac Brown, Roy Williams, they're making seven fig, well into seven figure salaries. Obviously that's different than money that's going toward women's athletics. You know, why is that okay, but not for uh, football and basketball players to make some of that money? Yeah, these are great questions. You know, on the football team, we have 85 student athletes that all get the same deal, if you will. And we did an analysis of some law students on campus, did some analysis for me a few years back. And they took the scholarships, the total amount of scholarship money that we allocate to the 85 football players and distributed it on an NFL pay scale. Well, we had a handful of students that got a lot more and a lot of students that got a lot less. So this revenue share, we, are, we have 85 that are treated the same. There's not a pro league in the country that treats all their players the exact same. And so, as I said, the, the pro model is entirely different. It has a draft. You get drafted. You don't get to select. The choice you make of which college you go to is a choice of the student. And so all of these things are interrelated. And to pick one specific topic like name image and likeness and then say okay this is the defining piece and everything's going to fall from that i I think it's too simple of an analysis i think you have to look at the total package of intercollegiate athletics and professional sports and say if we want to do this these are the implications associated with it bub i wanted to ask you this is is and you've obviously studied this in great detail one of the questions that's come up is how, what, what are these guardrails going to be? The NCAA is going to determine. And so from talking to people at some other universities, one thing that came up was, let's say you have a, a it doesn't even have to be a star athlete, but some, some really good players. It could be football, could be women's basketball, whatever sport. And around there, you know, in the university community, somebody decides, hey, we want to have them do an appearance at their, you know, this boosters or this this prominent alums uh, birthday party. Maybe they get twenty five thousand dollars. Maybe they get fifty thousand dollars. You know, the the NCA model, I would imagine, would look at that and go, well, this is going to be a recruiting advantage. And how are we going to control this? And then the pushback, I from what I understand that you could get from Congress, go, whoa, you can't. You can't limit that because that's free market. From your perspective, having studied this, when that when this Pandora's box opens, what is this going to do to the university and athletic department communities that you think people don't know, that can't foresee maybe until it's actually happening? Well, I think you gave a great example. Uh, you know, what is a fair market value? Boy, when you're, when you're in the collectibles market or in the art market, Fair market value is what somebody's willing to pay you. And professional leagues don't recruit. Recruiting is kind of the elephant in the room, in my opinion, that hasn't been discussed, discussed enough because that your, your choice of your school will be influenced by the economic opportunity associated with going there. That is not the same in the professional market. There's, again, the recruiting and the draft are two significant differences which is why I think the name, image, and likeness issue is one that I, I personally don't think is something we should be going down. I think the revenue share that we currently have, which to Stuart's question earlier, you know, we do have we have 100 kids participating in the two sports that generate money. We have 800 kids playing sports at Carolina. 
And so those 100 are supporting the other 700. Um, but that's been the, the, the inverted pyramid that does work in, in intercollegiate athletics for broad-based programming. But uh, if we start implementing guardrails, we're just going to have additional lawsuits about restraint of trade and antitrust violations. So this is only the beginning of the lawsuits. This has obviously been many years in the making. I mean, the Ed O'Bannon case was, or the trial was six years ago, I think, and that itself took five years to get to. Um, maybe the average fan, and, and obviously any anything that's involves NCA policy can be very complicated to follow if you're not involved in college sports. So us having this conversation right now, I think some people might say, well, wait a minute, isn't, isn't this too late? Didn't the NCA just, just put out a big document full of uh, uh, proposals? Uh, but it doesn't actually get voted on until January. So some, for somebody like yourself, and I'm sure you've talked about it with your colleagues who have these reservations, serious reservations, what can you do between now and January to affect that policy? Well, I think we, I tried to create some more dialogue about the, the value of, of the educational experience, the value of college sports, and differentiate it from pro sports. I, I don't think we should mirror pro sports. I think a lot of people talk about, you know, hey, let, and I want to talk about more choices. I think what's going on in the G League right now is fantastic. If kids want to go pro, I think they should be able to go pro. If they want to go to play professional, now professional football is more of a challenge because there isn't anything out there right now. But I also would argue that if there is a market for professional basketball from 18 to 22 or professional football from 18 to 22, and somebody wants to make that investment, I would like to see somebody do that. But there's been a huge investment in college athletics into providing these opportunities. And we're providing 11,000 opportunities a year for kids to play college football. And I think that's wonderful to create rules so that a handful can receive a more significant benefit just doesn't make sense to me. I understand it. I understand how some of the questions that you've asked that they've generated, they should get it. That's just a different model. And as I said, that, that those are fine models. I just don't believe in it for the collegiate model. So how can you guys, if you believe that and others believe that, how can you um, avoid a scenario where, because this really was all spurred by the state of California and some others, they have passed or are about to pass laws that, I guess you would say might be completely opposite of what you're saying now. How can you, um, uh, can, you know, or I guess rein this in in the way you're describing and still, you know, um, satisfy some of the um, uh, legislators who are, are kind of pushing the other side of it? Sure. I don't know if we can or can't, but I think the uh, discussion is good. I think it's healthy to have it. I think it's, it's important to understand what the downside of certain decisions are, downside of certain recommendations. Um, and, and so I, I think that that part of it is good. I don't think we've had enough really good discussion about the implications. There are a couple things that we have done recently that, uh, that I think have been very good. I think the cost of attendance has been good. The additional meals have been good. I think those are things that are very positive. I would support a group license where we would put the video game back generate the money and give it to the student athletes. I would go for jersey sales, put a name on it and a number on it, and part of the licensing would go to that student athletes. 
That I don't think would affect the recruiting. I don't think it would impact um, the choices of students. And so I, I, to me, those are better alternatives than the ones that have been proposed. Bubba, I was going to ask you, is there a middle ground? And I think you hit on a couple of points that seem like they would be a middle ground because, you know, when you're talking about jersey sales, and this is something that uh, I did a story about Reggie Bush, I don't know, a week and a half ago, and we talked about seeing the number five and, and everything like this. And, and as it relates now, this is there's some things that are on the table and there's some things that don't like that don't seem they are on the table. And a couple of the issues you hit on would be things that people are very interested in and that aren't in this. So is there ways in, in the discussion now to pivot in what the NCA is already kind of steering towards, do you think? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. You know, and I'm not an attorney. So, you know, I know that the discussion around a group license means you need to have some type of representation. But my understanding is you could have a voluntary association that if you opted in and you wanted to be in the video game, you could be. Now, you'd also have to have some relationship between the university and the video game producer because you'd want to use the stadium, the marks, the fight songs, and all of those things. And you'd have to figure out a revenue share that would be appropriate for the school and the student. And then within the student group, you'd have to distribute that to all those that opted in to participate. I think the same would be true with jerseys. But to me, I, to, that is, a, that is a, a path that's more palatable to me because I think that makes more sense. While it is down the pro model, which I don't like, it, it's a step that um, I think is more tolerable than, than just going all in and saying, the university can't be involved, we're gonna let the student do it. And you'd mentioned earlier about the time commitments that you have for academics and playing. Well, who's gonna run this business? So are we really gonna have agents with all of our student athletes developing social media platforms and marketing platforms for the student. The student's not gonna be able to do that and maintain the um, academics and athletic performance that they have to to stay eligible. Right, right. Right now you'd be creating more third party uh, vendors or whatever you wanna call them and maybe they would be above board as opposed to you might see some of this going on below board now, but I would think that's what you're talking about. Whereas these other things you're saying that, that you're suggesting probably don't have as much of a third party piece to it as, as this would. Yeah. The third party concerns me. And, you know, know, there's all kinds of stories about the, um, you know, the inappropriate um, runners and, and, you know, inducements to student athletes. You know, if we go down this path, it it is really going to be a challenge to monitor and as mentioned earlier, if we put too many guardrails on, it's just going to be another antitrust violation, another restraint of trade. But um, when there's a lot of money involved, there's going to be people that want to get engaged in the process. And there's no question. I, I'm not suggesting there's not a lot of money involved in college athletics today, but it, it's supporting a broad-based program. It's just, it's just so different than the pro model. Well, this is a very uh, complicated subject that we could probably talk to you about for a long time. I know your time is limited, and this is a college football podcast, so before we go, we definitely wanted to ask you uh, what it's been like having Mac Brown back, and in particular, seeing the impact he's having on the recruiting trail. I mean, I'm 247's rankings right now, UNC is ranked in the top five in the country alongside you know, football programs that we're used to seeing, more used to seeing up in those recruiting rankings. 
it's been great having Mac back. I mean, to have Mac in football and Roy Williams in basketball and Anson Dorrance, you know, we just, we have a, a great number of outstanding coaches, but Mac has totally rekindled the enthusiasm for football. One thing that um, I thought he would connect really well with our alumni since he had been here before he had success, what I completely underestimated was how good he was on social media and how passionate he was about recruiting. And I think those two things have really catapulted the recruiting process. And he's been uh, very appealing to a lot of young folks that want to jump in with him, recognizing that he is a Hall of Fame coach. He did get Carolina in the top 10 the last time he was here. And there's a great belief that he'll be able to do it again and do it very quickly. Well, Bubba, we appreciate your time and your perspective on this. It's been it's been uh, fascinating to hear your thoughts on it. And obviously, as Stu said, uh, what Mac's done there in a short time is pretty remarkable. So it's uh, made UNC a program everybody's got to keep an eye on. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time. appreciate the opportunity to express a view that may not be popular, maybe a bit different than most. But, you know, the, the half a million kids that uh, participate I'm trying to find every way that we can continue to allow them to participate. Given this pandemic in the last two weeks, just, you know, when, when money gets short, Olympic sport opportunities get reduced. And if we reallocate the revenue um, to, the, to the students that generate it, it will come at someone's expense. And it's typically not in that sport. Back to the podcast in a second. But first, a word about our sponsor, the Black Tux. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? Turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Quote, go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible unless you're dressing like your grandpa for Halloween. Ouch. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy we were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to remember for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code CFB10. That's theblacktux.com, code CFB10 for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, Stu, before we get to the mailbag, uh, some interesting comments from Bubba Cunningham. We appreciate him joining us. Biggest takeaway or biggest thing that surprised you that Bubba brought up? The biggest thing surprised that surprised me came toward the end after he had spent all that time pretty much dismissing NIL and, and trying to convince us why it doesn't fit with the academic model is saying, oh, I'm actually okay with group licensing. Bring back the video game, which obviously a lot of our listeners would be thrilled about. Bring back jersey sales. And the interesting thing about that is that the NCA basically did the opposite. They, they, uh, yes, they did. They were all for endorsements and they were totally against group licensing. And he's basically advocating for, for it in reverse. Which do you, so given that, and I, it's funny because it's almost like you go to the restaurant and you can either get the, the chicken plate or the fish plate, but you can't get both. <laughs> uh, which, and I don't want to call it the Bubba model because he's not advocating it like that, but which would you think is more sensible? What he had said or what the direction they seem like they're going in, which is quite honestly 
to me is is pretty thorny just because of the free market value on the appearance fee piece of this. I think that depends on your perspective going into it of, you know, me personally, I'm fine with the athletes um, realizing their full market potential, even if it means recruiting could get messy, even if it means that a booster might overpay. Like, I'm okay with that, but I understand that other people are not. Group licensing would be certainly a lot easier to regulate and enforce. Um, but as you brought up, the reason the NCA is not going there is because they're terrified that the players would then unionize to uh, to negotiate the the um, group licenses. And I haven't really heard a good explanation for how you could do it uh, otherwise. Yeah, uh, look, I think college uh, coaches are scared to death of doing anything that will bring in more third-party agents. And that's a hard one for the NCAA to get around on on all of this because there's money involved and there's side money and it's money that uh, it's basically new money, right? And so, to me, I don't know where this is going to go. Um, you know, it's one of those where it was interesting to hear what Bubba said because it's you know when I hear this, I, I I can see a lot of components to it. The one thing that has always just as a as a media person who covers it. And look, in full disclosure, you and I both make money off college athletics, uh, you know, as part of our jobs. And I work for a company at Fox that is paying lots of money to to put on these games. Having said all that, um, you, when you look at this and you say, I, I've always approached it as how viable is this? How is this going to work? Not whether necessarily I think it's right or wrong, but you can kind of see the pitfalls of it. And so whenever I've thought about this, it's been through that prism of, well, this is ripe for abuse because you're basically walking right into that. Like I almost always default to seeing things through the recruiting lens because that's where the biggest financial abuses are, you know, ripe for it. And so to me, that's more fraught with the model that the NCA is going to go into than the really the one that Bubba brought up, which I'm not saying there's not risk and there's not some some potential there for that to go all over the place. But I feel like it's more it's more um, vulnerable, if you want to use that word, in the model the NCA is is going to walk into right now. Well, what do you say we open the mailbag? As always, you can send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Stu, our first question is from Lewis Chilton in La Cunada. Hey, Stu and Bruce, there's been a lot of talk about the impact of coronavirus on the schedule, fans in the stands and the recruiting calendar. Oddly, there doesn't seem to be much talk about what this may do to the on-field product. With spring practice canceled and off-season conditioning interrupted, I'm thinking that some programs will be exposed for a lack of player and or coach discipline. Do you think some teams will unexpectedly get dominated on the field because they are completely unprepared for the season? Thanks, Lewis Chilton, for your question. I think this is a good one for us to go into, especially in the week that we are talking about coronavirus and return to field. Yeah, and we've never been through anything like this, so it's hard to to say with any certainty but yeah i could i could see that happening i think um coaches often lament the you know the, the number of mistakes their players make in those early season games um that you know you talk all about practice but then nothing can really prepare you for when the games are real um the one the thing i'm definitely concerned about is you look at um the schools where there was a coaching change and 
not only have they did they not get to do a spring practice with them, they just haven't been around them at all. Uh, like I just think it, it could be a very very rough year for some of those first year coaches. Like that there's a situation where I don't know that four weeks of even if you get in the full four weeks of training camp, if that's anywhere near enough for a new staff to fully implement what they're planning to do. Yeah, look, if you're Clemson and you're you've had the same quarterback for a couple of years and also you've played 15 games a year. And it's not to say there aren't new guys and certainly Jeff Scott's not there, but Tony Elliott's still there and Dabo Sweeney's still there. I mean, it's you are as close to business as usual, whereas look at Florida State. Here's Mike Norvell. He just got down there and there's a lot of new parts and new pieces and you're putting together a coaching staff. Um you know, if you're Mike Leach, you have a new quarterback who's a grad transfer from Stanford. He's Leach has spent most of his time in Key West. I, it's it's really and it's a system where it's predicated on timing, even more than probably any other. So, I mean, those are the things that I think are going to be really challenges for for new staffs, especially and and breaking in new quarterbacks. Because I think, again, that position is so dependent on timing. Now, I wouldn't say just because, use the example of Boston College, new staff, Jeff Halfley, first-time head coach. Uh, does that mean the season's already shot beforehand? No, but I, I think it's going to be so much more of an uphill climb because of such a, uh, such a chaotic offseason. I also wonder if it'll be harder for freshmen to get on the field soon. Um having lost that you know the early enrollees who usually get a head start by going through that set of spring practices um and of course the big concern for everybody is injuries and you know, they've they've decided basically that you need six weeks that's the minimum uh two weeks back with your training staff and then four weeks of practice but that's still a lot less than you normally get so what if you get a bunch of injuries in preseason camp and uh before the season even starts you're you're looking at uh having to put some guys in there that just aren't prepared yet. So hopefully that doesn't happen. And obviously it's not like some schools were affected by this and others weren't. Everybody, Everybody's operating at the same disadvantage. So um, one thing I think we can agree on is it's going to be a season unlike any we've ever experienced. Uh, Stu and Bruce from Sam and Adam Engelbert in Tempe, Arizona. Can you rank who you believe are the top three quarterbacks coming back in the SEC? I got to tell you, I think I looked at this list earlier this offseason is pretty ugly given the need for an elite qb as evidenced by the recent cfb champions do you believe that any of the top three qbs are good enough to take a team to the title in today's game what are the chances that a lack of elite qbs could result in the sec missing the playoff i have a dark horse but he's actually not that dark of a horse if uh Stu, if you read my story about two weeks ago on the quarterback kind of off the grid quarterbacks who could springboard uh much like joe burrow did not to say that they're complete newcomers, but become first-round picks and, and go to prominence. My best guess on this is Kyle Trask from Florida. Now, he's only started for less than half a year because he didn't really play that much in high school behind DeHarrick King in Texas. But I think Florida's really good, and he did a lot of really good things last year. The offense just ran better with him. He, he, he doesn't run as well as Felipe Franks, but I think he just operated the system well, and he was not starstruck or just kind of rattled by the speed i would put kyle trask as the guy i would put as number one in the sec quarterbacks and then i would say even though he's been up and down a lot since he's 
you know, been a college quarterback. I would put Kellen Mond. He's going to be a senior. He's got some good talent around him at Texas A&M. And then my third choice was split either between Ole Miss's John Rice Plumley and Auburn's Bo Nix. I'm going to go Bo Nix here because he was a freshman. I mean, both guys were young quarterbacks, but I just think his uh, his upside there is intriguing. Do you disagree with my list? I kept waiting for you to say Jamie Newman. Um, is it just because we haven't seen him yet in a Georgia uniform or – uh, you don't think he's better than those three? I'm a little more skeptical. I mean, look, it's a new fit. It's a new offensive coordinator. This goes a little bit to what I was saying to uh, Lewis Chilton's question, which is it's not to say he's not going to have any time working with with his new teammates and his new offensive coordinator, uh, Todd Munkin, but I think it's going to be a little harder for it to be seamless because of just the chaotic offseason, whereas these other guys – Kellen Mond's been around Jimbo Fisher a lot. Uh, Kyle Trask has certainly been around Dan Mullen quite a bit. And Bo Nix at least has had a year. Now, granted, he's got uh, a new OC in there in Chad Morris. But they're still, you know, he's still acclimated to his receivers. Whereas I think, and this is the reason why I'm glad you brought up why I, it's not to say that I don't think that Georgia can go be a playoff team and win a national title with Jamie Newman, but I think it's just a little more of an uphill climb because there just hasn't, there won't be as as much time to have that continuity and develop a comfort zone as normal for a grad transfer who's not there in the spring. Yeah, I mean he's kind of now in the same boat that um, Joe Burrow was in his first season, where he came in in the summer and and really only had that that three or four week ramp up ramp up period before the season and. You know, we didn't really see anything close to what we ended up seeing from him towards the end of that first season. But Kyle Trask actually has the um, he's the highest rated returning passer in the SEC. I don't think you could possibly guess who has the second highest completion percentage coming. I mean, uh, efficiency rating coming back, coming back. It's not KJ Costello. Uh, Well, he's not. This is the 2019 SEC passing leaders. Uh, does Mac Jones have enough reps and attempts? No, he. If he were in there, he'd be by far number one. Um, it's Jared Garantano from Tennessee. Wow, I know. I would not yeah. guess that. Now, if you nationally, that was only good for. And this speaks to. I think it's a pretty mediocre crop in general coming back. So he was the number two rated or number three rated quarterback in the SEC, and he's not in the top thirty. Nah. Well, he will have a good offensive line to play behind. So if you want to go out on a limb and say Jared Garantano, then I think I'm not going to fans- say that because Jeremy Pruitt's just going to bench him the first time he messes up. <laughs> right? Um, Nathan, Boulder, Colorado. Hey, Stu and Bruce, my apologies for the competitor reference here, Bruce. The last time Colorado hosted College Game Day was in September of 96. As far as I know, this is the longest drought of any school that has hosted Game Day. They also haven't even appeared in a game day matchup since 1997. Do you think they will ever host again? And if so, how long do you think it'll be before they do? I think they're doing it just to spite Chris Fowler. He's the high host that show. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, Who wants maybe to like, host? Um, I, that's interesting. You know what? Like, it's a it's such a cool uh, game day, not capital G, capital D, like typical game day experience. I mean, we were there. I think it was week two for the Nebraska game. Great town, really cool college town, beautiful place. Um, it's just a fun environment. And I don't know. It's going to be a little while, I think, because they're in a rebuild right now, right? I think that they have new, you know, another new coach. 
going to break in a new quarterback. It's not to say they don't have any players, but I don't know. It's hard for game day to go to a place that's like not a top 20 team. Yeah, they would have to have – they probably have to have the kind of season that Utah had last year where they're, you're in the mix down the stretch of the season. And they did – Play in the Pac-12 championship game a few years ago with my. But that was like a senior-dominated. It was a really experienced team. This yeah. would not be a very experienced team. It clearly proved to be a one-off, and I don't remember them having a game with you know at any point that everybody was like, "Oh, that's the big biggest game in the country this week." I think both of us were pretty underwhelmed by the Carl Durrell hire. Um, it would be pretty shocking to me if he leads them to that place where they're playing in that kind of game. So it could be a few years, but in general, Colorado is a great place, and. They've had great success there in the past. You know, they won a national championship. They certainly, when we first started covering the sport, were one of the considered one of the preeminent programs in the country. But it's been a long, long time now, and they just keep can't seem to get out of their own way. Um, certainly, with some of these coaching hires. But as a school, I think I don't think it's hopeless for them. Just wish they'd make better coaching hires. All right, Stu. It was a very eventful audible. Hopefully. Things will be trending, keep trending on the positive front. Um, as we said, as always, you can send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. How did we get away with the things we used to do? Jumping off bridges, spinning down hills, and catching air.